Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I have Brittany Spanos here from Rolling Stone. Hey, Brittany. Hey. And Rob Sheffield here as well. Hey, Rob. Hey, Brian. Rob's fifth book, which just came out, is called Dreaming the Beatles, The Love Story of One Band and the Whole World. It's premised on the very sharp point that the story of the Beatles didn't end when they broke up, that it was actually just the beginning. And it goes on to posit that there's such a thing as 80s Beatles, 90s Beatles, etc., in the sense that our perception and experience of them shifted over time. But it's also a very funny, very personal, very idiosyncratic love letter from Rob to the Beatles, even Ringo, especially Ringo even. <laughs> especially Ringo. And it is, of course, very much worth a read. So let me start by challenging you. <laughs> All right. I expect no less from you, Brian. Uh, I expect no less from myself. <laughs> you write that the Beatles are the world's greatest rock and roll band. Words that I am sure you chose with purpose. Words that are familiar from another band. Now, to me, the Beatles were or are the greatest something, but perhaps not that. But maybe you can defend and explain your decision to refer to them in those particular terms. Well, the, uh, the, the Mick Jagger-shaped elephant in the room <laughs> is that the Rolling Stones, of course, very much made it their brand. While the Beatles were still a band, the Stones were calling themselves the world's greatest rock and roll band even before the Beatles broke up. And for me, the Beatles, their concept of rock and roll from the very beginning, that it included everything they liked, rockabilly, the blues, R&B, it included schlocky movie songs, you know, they... They liked to cover Ray Charles songs, and they liked to cover A Taste of Honey, stuff like that. Uh, girl groups, songwriting for hire, country, it was all rock and roll to them. And that definition of rock and roll, probably like more like what we would now call pop music, but their expansive definition of rock and roll is what made stuff like The Stones possible. So the fact that they didn't have a live career in the way that many subsequent bands did. They played under hilarious limitations, you know, <laughs> where they couldn't hear themselves. And it is true that, as you say in the book, they acquit themselves in some recordings and, and you can make a case for them as a strong live band. I just don't think you can make the case for being as good a live band as many of their contemporaries or being as good as like The Who or The Stones or Zeppelin Live. And they never gave themselves a chance to become that, right? Because they stopped before they even reached full maturity because they couldn't reproduce that stuff on stage and they were sick of, of not being able to hear themselves. So how does the lack of sort of a real live presence affect your assessment of them or, or, or your thinking about them? Well, we'll never know whether they could have, if they'd chosen to keep playing live, whether they could have blown the rules away for that the way they did for blowing the rules away from making studio albums and it's funny that in 1967 68 there's are such peak like pivotal years in terms of how the whole idea of what a rock show is is completely changing that you know if the, if the grateful dead like doing their massive marathon shows on the west coast in 1967 the goalposts completely changed and the beatles weren't playing in that league they just dropped out before they got to the level so we, we don't know whether they could have adapted to that the way the stones certainly did Paul did eventually, of course. Paul definitely did. But it's funny that <laughs> George did not. But it's funny that, you know, like when you watch, you know, the the Let It Be movie and the outtakes from that project and it's all them preparing to play one show. And they're arguing so much about where to do this show. Ringo does not want to leave England for this show. Paul's like, no, we should go to Africa. And they're arguing so much over whether to have this, where to have this one show. And you think, wow, planning an entire tour, it would have distracted them from making music entirely because they're so like the arguments they were having that that make their records from that period so so exciting and so creatively conflicted that would have kept them from being able to plan a, 
a, a tour at all. Why do you think George struggled so much on his infamous 70s tour? He was maybe, he hadn't done it in a very long time and maybe he underestimated the work involved. It was funny that for all the Beatles, they were really intimidated by live performance in the 70s. And it's easy to forget now because you go see Paul and, and he's playing such a marathon show. In the early 70s, he was touring with Wings and refusing to play any Beatles songs and they did a lot of shows on on English college campuses unannounced and Paul said he stopped doing it because people would come up to him afterwards and complain about how like he wasn't playing Beatles songs anymore and how he he didn't follow through on Sgt. Pepper and for a lot of fans in the 70s the idea of what rock was and what rock and roll was and what pop was was changing and to do that live that was something that the Beatles were really intimidated by. I remain fascinated with that George tour. Um, the the you, you mentioned it, you know, in my life he he did in my life not even his song, and then he changes the lyrics. Uh, in my life, I love God more. Yeah, uh, and, and you can just you feel the groan from the soul. It's like he's doing this song, like finally, like George, who we love so much, he's on stage and we can see he's in rough shape, and he does this song that we all know and love. Again, not even one of his songs, and he he has to he has to mess with it that way. It's fascinating because you'd think that a Beatle or an ex-Beatle would, you know, get a vocal coach, get because he was struggling with his voice. Now instead, he just ground on. It's a crazy thing. It's just it's very seventies. He he was going through some stuff. Yeah, <laughs> but also like that, you know, when the Beatles when they were learning their chops as a live band, you know, it was all about you know just massive you know stimulus via you know adrenaline as well as artificial means to just go out there and do this super intense like half hour without stopping and then just an equally frantic rush to the next town and the whole sort of 70s laid back I mean you look at the people in George Harrison's band at that time and they were used to doing you know really kind of you know mellow rock as opposed to rock and roll tours where you know stretching out and you know there's all these different skills called for that George had never had to learn but you listen to a lot of that stuff and it's like, wow, like he underestimated how difficult it would be to sing on stage for that long every night. Have you had fantasies of seeing the Beatles in Hamburg? I, I, I know I have, especially after seeing Backbeat. <laughs> Absolutely. I have a friend, uh, Doug Gilliard, who's in Guided by Voices and yeah. Surf and lots of other bands. And he has a band uh, who are a Hamburg Beatles cover band. And they do shows that are covering specific nights in Hamburg, like they do the set list that the Beatles were doing. Wow. It's really, really fun, because it's like they do a Carl Perkins cover, and then they do a Shirelle song, and then they do Somewhere Over the Rainbow, and then they do I Saw Her Standing There. And it, it really is revelatory of how bizarre it was that they were learning their chops in this kind of environment. I think John would maintain that that era of the Beatles could sort of kick the stone's ass. I think that that was sort of... That was something he, one of the many, many, many angry points he wanted to get across to Jan <laughs> in 1970 was how fierce the Beatles were and how maybe Brian Epstein and a lot of other things maybe softened their edges. Yeah, I love that there, there's a great part in, in that classic Lennon Remembers interview where he's saying that the Beatles, our best music was made you know, in Hamburg before we got into a studio and sort of saying, you know, we, we softened the edges, you know, we sold out basically like once we started playing shows that, you know, that people could actually go to see rather than just German gangsters. But you can sense how like just playing under those, you know, kind of like horrific combat zone kind of conditions, you know, sharpened the Beatles and made them the live band they were. 
Lennon helped invent sort of the ultimate hipster stance on a band, which is they, they were not only better, you know, on their first album, they were better before anyone had heard them, yeah. besides a few drunken sailors. And yeah, 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 the hottest, the hottest of takes. It was yes, it was. I the, was in the Beatles, and like, we're, but it's also funny how much in that interview he's talking about the Stones and you know Mick Jagger being as as John said a little tardy about the Stone about the Beatles about you know Mick Jagger throwing shade at the Beatles not being as edgy as the Stones or as tough as the Stones which he was keen to de- to deflect. And by the way, I should mention that we played about 45 minutes of Jan's incredible 1970 interview on last week's episode of Rolling Stone Music Now, which you can download. And it's well worth it. As I was saying, it, when you hear John saying these things that you've read all your life, yeah. it has a really different impact. It's fascinating. You make a, a convincing case that the Beatles transcended the 60s. Do you agree with that, Bernie? Absolutely. Yeah, I think the Beatles are, if someone were to get into, like, in you know this generation or whatever and they're thinking about like listening to music outside of the last 10 years like the beatles is always where everyone goes i mean they their music is everywhere the music is referenced everywhere i loved your entire chapter where you kind of talked about all those songs that referenced the beatles and the way that we see them because i mean even thinking about the fact that black beatles came out while you were writing this book and even before <laughs> like it, like that was a number one song and then you released this book and um yeah so it's interesting how no matter what, the Beatles are always sort of that entry drug to like everything else and to, you know, the 60s and 60s culture and, you know, rock music in general, the history of rock music. I mean, the Beatles are really that meeting point. It's funny, when I was growing up in the 70s and it was already really comical for my parents that my sisters and I wanted to listen to the Beatles all the mm-hmm. time because they said, oh, you know, that that's over, that happened, that band broke up, they don't exist anymore. <laughs> and it's funny that, you know, now my sister's you know, now they're little kids. My nieces and nephews listen to the Beatles. My niece, you know, just learned to play Blackbird on guitar. She's, you know, it's it's funny that for all the predictions about when this music was supposed to last and when it was supposed to be over, the Beatles have outlived all those predictions. couple parts that randomly struck me in the book. First of all, when you realize to your great disappointment that the exciting sounding band Chicago Transit Authority was just Chicago. It's well, really a buzzkill. <laughs> Chicago Transit Authority is such an awesome name and you look at that album, it's a double album and like got all these spooky song titles, you know, part one, part two, like, all, like very like, you know, proggy, arty looking album. And then it's like, wait a minute, this is Chicago. <laughs> but more importantly, there's a, a point when one of the BGs, I forget which, <laughs> basically apparently once said in the 70s in, in one of the most obnoxious statements I've ever read, and I thought they were nice dudes, the BGs. He said basically that there's no such thing as the Beatles. The Beatles are gone. Therefore, once we come out with our version of Sgt. Peppers, it will be as if the old one never existed. <laughs> now, Rob, this is a real quote. Actual quote. Actual <laughs> quote. Um, and it's funny that when the Bee Gees, who you know saw themselves like so many other '60s bands, as you know the Beatles were the standard they wanted to meet, and you know the Beatles really epitomized what the Bee Gees wanted to aspire to in their, in their creative evolution. So you, you can really like your heart goes out to the the Bee Gees. They're the biggest band in the world. It's 1977. They're making Sgt. Pepper as a movie, starring themselves as Sgt. Pepper and his band, and starring Peter Frampton as Billy Shears. And they they sincerely believe that people are going to. This is going to make people forget all about the Beatles. And there was a real sense, a real divide between people who were older, like you said, who thought the Beatles were over, and the kids who were making their own version of the Beatles. And you point to this compilation, rock and roll music, that was all wrong. It had a 50s cover. It drove Ringo crazy. (laughs) 
But talk about that album, the rock and roll music album. I'm going to explain again what it is. It's a, a compilation that came out in 1976, and it's the Beatles basically as a 50s band who are doing you know it, it has all their cover versions it's all fast songs it's a double album set and it's all fast songs mostly early stuff and the cover is this insanely cheesy 50s neon malt shop you know american graffiti kind of motif and obviously it's because kids loved happy days you know, we loved the Fonz. Those of us who were like little kids in the 70s, we thought the Fonz was cool, which was bewildering to those of us who had parents who grew up in the 50s. I used to watch Happy Days with my parents. And they said, none of these kids would have been allowed to hang out with Fonzie. And like, and if Fonzie went to that mall shop, the other kids would not have been allowed to, to go. And I, I went to see Grease in the theater with my parents, and they were laughing. And they said, trust us, we went to high school in the, in the 50s. None of those girls would have liked Frankie Avalon. <laughs> they were just like laughing at the pink ladies listening to Frankie Avalon. That, that this was something that uh, Capital tried to reckon with by putting out a really 50s-themed, oldies-themed Beatles cover that completely ignored all their progressive and psychedelic aspects. It's sort of like if if the Fonz had curated an album of Beatles songs. Is that <laughs> yeah, sort of yeah, that? Yeah. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, so, and, and it completely ignores any of their ballads, any of their ambitious psychedelic works. And much to the Beatles' chagrin, this album not only comes <laughs> out, which they find really offensive. They think the cover is hideous. They they can't believe how ugly the graphics are. And it becomes a massive hit. It's it's uh, the number two hit all through the summer of 1976, right behind Paul McCartney's Wings at the Speed of Sound. And it's funny that for the other Beatles, they were complaining about this compilation that they thought made them look cheesy and stupid and trivial, and yet they couldn't understand why kids of the 70s loved it and thought, this is our new favorite group. Got to Get You Into My Life became a top 10 hit single in 1976, 10 years after it came out. But it was it sounded phenomenal on the radio in between ABBA and Casey and the Sunshine Band. And amazingly, that album is, or perhaps not so amazingly, the album is actually deleted. It just does not exist. Yeah, they it, completely it, wrote that out of history. It, it's the the concept of deletion of album from the of albums from the catalog is a fascinating one. But anyway, so this is Rolling Stone music. Now uh, we're talking with Rob Sheffield about his new book on the Beatles, and we'll be right back with a lot more. Rob, if you were to encounter a human who had just arrived on Earth, and as we were saying earlier, this is not a theoretical phenomenon because every day there's people who want to introduce the the Beatles to their kids. But if you wanted to introduce the Beatles to a you know to a non-child who had never heard the Beatles, where would you start to to encapsulate them? What songs would you play? What albums would you play? How would you do this? You know what? I would start with the song Help. Just because for me, that's where I came in. That was the first time I heard the Beatles. I was five years old and I was watching the movie Help on TV. And it's funny that there's so much going on just in that song that John is singing and telling a story, but also John John is singing along with Paul and George and the way that their vocals are bouncing off of his and the way that you know they sort of join him in telling the story when when I was young, now my, my life has changed. And that... It, it, it just blew my mind as a little kid that, you know, there, there are these boys singing together and one of them is telling this really personal, soulful story and the other two are joining him in telling this story. For me, the whole story of the Beatles and their friendship is really in that song. If I had to pick one song to introduce somebody to the Beatles, I'd probably say the one that made me a fan. Need somebody help, not just anybody help. You know I need someone One of the things that seems most important to me about that song is 
what John has to say about it. And it changes, it's one of those interview quotes that can really profoundly change the way you hear a song, which is that, you know, he wasn't kidding around. He really needed help, <laughs> you know, that he was miserable and was reaching out and he needed someone and that it was, it was a cry for, for, from the heart and actually one of the most sincere and personal Beatles songs written by him ever. You probably didn't know that certainly when you were five years old. At some point, you learned that. How, how for you did it, does that change the way you hear that song? You can you could totally hear it. It's you know it's funny when he talks about it in in the Lennon Remembers interview with Jan, and he says that's when we were eating marijuana for breakfast, and you know things were really insane, and and yet you can hear that desperation in his voice. But like so many of John's really desperate, personal, soulful songs, it's a song that he's singing with other people and that it's not a song you can't you listen to somebody cover help when it's just them and the guitar and it's a totally different song and, and something really important is missing because the way the vocals blend is really part of the story of the song i remember hearing that song and seeing them sing it on tv when i was a little kid and i thought this is what it looks like to have friends just imagine having friends like that that you share that feeling of desperation with i always kind of thought of it as the backing vocals were the help if it's a solo acoustic song, it's just pretty tragic, you know, but the lift of the band and the backing vocals are the incarnate that, which is... Yeah, like, you listen to so many John's saddest songs, like, you know, Babies in Black is another one, or Yes It Is, or even something like Norwegian Wood, or Ticket to Ride. He, he does these really personal, soulful songs, and you can hear so much pain and honesty and rawness in his voice, but it would be a completely different song if it were a guy singing this song by himself. But that the other Beatles are joining in his story and telling him with it, that adds so much warmth and soul to it. The flip side of introducing the world to the Beatles with this song is sort of the Overlook songs. And... I very much agree with you about All Too Much. It's like a parallel universe Beatles song that people forget <laughs> totally, about. Totally. You know, it may be the only Beatles song that Oasis actually heard. I, I, think, I think they don't <laughs> I actually know the rest theory. of the catalog. <laughs> I um, love that. Oh, it's a bonehead. Just, just lock yourself up with this for a few months. <laughs> so many bands have one famous song and it's nowhere near as good as this. Like, it's really funny how any other band would have made this the center of their legend. Absolutely. Let's hear that. I literally cannot remember when I first encountered that song. It, it, it just kind of floats in the ether because I'm not a big listener to that particular album. <laughs> <laughs> but at some point, it floated. It, it definitely floated into my brain. Uh, do you remember how you encountered that? Yeah, uh, uh, watching the Yellow Submarine movie where the actual it's movie, in the movie. Yeah, yeah. And my sisters and I, when, which I've never seen, by the way. Yeah. yeah. When my sisters and I were little kids in the seventies, and we would hold a tape recorder up to the TV when the Beatles movies were on, so we could like tape the songs from the movie. And Yellow Submarine. So it's funny. I really associate it with the version in the movie, which is slightly different from the version in the album. And it, it's funny that it was such a celebratory and joyous song, but also there's something really scary and, and menacing in the guitar. And so funny that they didn't even think this was a half-decent song. I mean, they left it off Magical Mystery Tour. So they were like, hmm, should we go with this one or flying? No, let's go with flying. You know? it's, it's a George prejudice, to be sure, I think. You I, know. But it's, it's funny that even George, who wanted more songs on albums and more credit, like even George didn't think this was a very good song. And that... They just threw it away on the Yellow Submarine soundtrack. It's it's funny that any other song could have, you know, any other band could have made a, a legend out of this song. Well, you can pick 
in the same way of the ludicrous rock and roll compilation, and no offense to your childhood self, you, you could <laughs> you could pick out veins of Beatles and make all sorts of compilations, uh, you know, like sort of crunchy power pop, like that, Paperback Rider. I think that might be my favorite sort of vein of Beatles. And it's funny, there's not that many bands where you can pick out just sort of individual veins and make whole sort of mini careers out of that, make whole mixtapes out of it. It's an interesting thing. Totally, whole, whole genres. I mean, it's funny that just in the snippet of It's All Too Much we heard, it's like first they invent Sonic Youth with the guitar and then the organ comes in and it's like yes 70s prog rock we're, we're giving birth to you right now like that there's all this stuff going on and that you can hear what all four Beatles are doing I mean Ringo is a monster in that song I'm a, I'm a strident pro Ringo partisan <laughs> yes. and that, that song is such a like such a Ringo time capsule monster is not a term one associates with him but he is kind of a monster and you kind of joke in your book that drummers disparage Ringo I mean I think a lot of drummers actually love Ringo because he knows how to play for the song you know he's the ultimate example of of playing for the song guy but he also has his moments that are and I will say playing Beatles rock band have you ever played that yes yes it's so fun (laughs) playing drums on Beatles rock band makes you realize that there's things like on here comes the sun Ringo kills it. There are some very tricky parts that's, that's, on, a, on a song like that, you know? Brilliant example, yes. And a song that, you know, that's not one of the first 40 things you notice about Here Comes the Sun. There's so much going on in that song. And Ringo is so willing to be a support player. But yes, like he's totally killing it in that song. And he kills it by making sure he doesn't overstep on anybody. He, he always said, my one rule is to always play with the singer. And it's, it's something he's always doing. <laughs> I'd love to hear like the, the next three rules. You yeah, know, I'm not sure he has a lot of other rules. <laughs> yeah. not, I don't even know if he has any other rules. <laughs> Bernie, what vein of, of Beatles has uh, attracted you over the years? What, what's closest to your heart? I mean, Rubber, Rubber Soul is definitely my favorite Beatles album. So kind of their folkier moments has always been what I've been drawn to. But I also have a very, very strong affection for like very early Beatles. I Want to Hold Your Hand will forever be my favorite Beatles song. A lot of pop music, is, especially pop groups, are really compared to and made in the vein of what the Beatles are and were. Like every band wants to like get that type of reaction that the Beatles were getting that early on for these like really simple, beautiful love songs that they were writing. And that's always going to be Well the sort of encapsulated ecstasy of I wanna hold your hand is sort of the the ideal, the platonic ideal of like sort of a boy band pop song, Mm -hmm. you know. And if they'd broken up after Mm -hmm. that song, we'd still know their name now because that song is just and it's funny that you can pick out what all four of them are doing. Just the vocals alone in that song are completely insane. And I just always love the concept of it. Just like I wanna hold your hand. It's so innocent and it's so just like the most like sweetest like tender thing that you can possibly say in a pop song and it's perfect. yes yes <laughs> and and so passionate in the way yeah. well it, it's funny because every single time they sing the word hand like mm-hmm. you know like your heart just surges and it's funny that sometimes john just goes ha and he can't even finish the word because he's <laughs> screaming so hard and just the raw emotion in that song they're holding nothing back yeah Again, on the flip side, one of the more obscure songs that you focus on is Yes, It Is. It's one of the the Beatles songs. We were talking about Fonzie's Beatles. This is, you know, Christine's Beatles. Christine being the spooky car from the Stephen King story (laughs) that plays (laughs) that plays very ominous 50s rock and roll. This is Christine's Beatles. Let's let's hear that. If you were tonight, remember what I said. I mean, that is, it's spine tingling and weirdly terrifying. There's a lot Creepy. Yeah. Creepy, creepy, creepy. And again, all three of them sing. George's guitar is so creepy. 
the pedal steel, like, it's really disturbing. When I was a little kid and I loved, you know, uh, I want to hold your hand and I loved She Loves You and I loved Penny Lane and I loved Here Comes the Sun. But yes, it is. I heard that. I was like, this is the worst Beatles song ever. It's really bumming me out. I never want to hear it again. It's really creepy. The Beatles had a lot of really scary moments and that was definitely one of them. You know, it's funny. Last night I was listening to them uh, sing Money. You know, to John sing money and for some reason it scared the hell out of me it's it's really maniacally intense I mean people say things about performances you know it's a thing you say but really when you listen to it it is unhinged and what I was picturing was like Donald Trump singing it it's it's crazy how much there is there but it, it, it it's another another weirdly scary <laughs> Beatles really moment scary yes and it's funny and they're doing this you know this great Motown song money that's what I want and the way that John is just screaming like at the end like give me money I want to be free. That's a line he added. And and even the way uh, John and uh, is screaming this and Paul and George are doing the Hoo! and the that's what I want. Like and it's really scary. It's 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 demanding. And that I want to be free is one of the certainly one of the great ad libs in pop history. You know. Yeah. The, the, the Motown original was like all that pretty green. And John was whether he heard it wrong or changed it. He was just like I want to be free. And it's like. Oh, it never occurred to me that that might have been the origin of that. That's interesting. Okay, that that it, it's not from nowhere. Interesting. And, and another one, you listen to what Ringo's doing in that song, and it's like, okay, Ringo really wanted money. Ringo, <laughs> Ringo was like, you know, I'll blow the other three away. It's really like that sort of like early black leather gang mentality of the Beatles. We'll hear that for a second. So I was thinking that we would go beetle by beetle. All right. You know, because you do that a bit in your book. Let's start with Ringo. You, you write a, a very sweet sort of defense of Ringo and, and not just a defense, uh, again, like sort of a love letter to Ringo. What, what do you love about Ringo? Well, it's funny because Ringo, we love his personality. He's, you know, one of the most beloved men in the world. He has been for 50 years. Uh, everybody loves Ringo, smiles when they say his name. And yet I think maybe we underrate him as a musician uh, just because his personality tempts people to, to dismiss him. But he was the only Beatle who was hired for his playing. I mean, the Beatles hired him not because right. he was a nice guy, but because they needed a drummer who could actually like do offbeats. And they couldn't play songs like you know, Money that we heard. They, they couldn't play these songs until they had a drummer who could do it. And Ringo was just ahead of, I mean, he wasn't just you know like the best drummer in Liverpool. He was <laughs> one of the all-time great rock and roll drummers by the time they made their first record. As all the other Beatles said on more than one occasion, they could not have done what they did without Ringo. And as, as John said many times, he, he said Ringo was already a star in Liverpool before he joined the Beatles and that he would have made it even without them. Yeah, the the sort of thing of that Ringo sucks or whatever, I think was part of it was from kids who just wanted to hear John Bonham or, or Keith Moon. It's just a different thing. And well, I, I think God bless I, drummers. Yeah. Dr drummers are their own culture and I respect deeply drummer culture and as a non-member of drummer culture, I can, but like it's hilarious to hear drummers talk about Ringo and it's funny, it, it's usually drummers who, who have a beef with Ringo's drumming and and then they're usually, and I'm like oh, okay, go go back to tell me about Steve Gadd or Terry Bazio and, and why he was better than the guy who played on I Want to Hold Your Hand. Uh, but it's just, you know, Drummer culture is its own thing, and, and I respect it as a subculture unto itself without necessarily believing to it. It's like a religious cult or something. As Ringo says in the Help movie, not knocking anybody's religion or anything. <laughs> I felt the way you depicted Ringo's childhood, which I've read before, but something about it I found 
more affecting than before. Just the point that, as you say, a, a kindly musician or somebody came and Ringo was in the, the children's ward. He was very sick all through his childhood in that way, that, that non-specific way that th- thankfully, hopefully isn't quite as much the case in, in more modern days of medicine. But he, he was just sick and, and, uh, and missed so much school that his cousin had to teach him how to read. That's yeah. a huge bummer. And then, you know, so basically a, a kindly musician like brought in a drum and let him, he banged on a drum in the, the children's ward, which almost had me crying, honestly, yeah, the thought of really it. It's really moving. Yes. Ringo spent years at a time in the hospital and, 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 one day a music teacher just came into the children's ward and had musical instruments for the kid and Ringo gravitated to the drum and that was the first time he banged a drum was in his hospital bed as a little kid who really wasn't expected to live long enough to see his 16th birthday and that this is you know just how much of art history has been changed by the fact that this music teacher just visited the kids in the hospital that day there was a great controversy sorry to interrupt yeah. great controversy a couple of years ago when he, he saw the movie straight out of compton and he said he liked it because it reminded him of growing up in liverpool <laughs> and ba- back in liverpool they were not necessarily jazzed about this this ringo <laughs> comment but I, I, he, he really like he had a very interesting life you didn't touch on the fact that Ringo went through a very prickly period in the press. I don't, you, I'm sure you're aware. There was a period when, he, when he'd be like, you know, there was just eight years of my life. Like, why doesn't anyone ask about any other years? And it's like, well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, come on, man. Like, it, I guess it, yeah, it, there's it, probably psychic burdens of being Ringo, I would imagine. Yes. And, and, I would say, and I would say this applies to all four Beatles, that they cope with the psychic burden of being Beatles so much better than anybody could have expected, so much better than anybody else could have. I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing. When you think of the, the psychic burden of being a Beatle or an ex-Beatle, for, for just one day, none of us would be able to take it. We'd crumple like a Dorito. And it's amazing that like that Ringo, I mean, I, I think anybody would be prickly with that kind of burden. It's just kind of amazing that Ringo and Paul, that they, they still have so much grace with it and that John and George did as well. You, you were nodding when I talked about the Ringo chapter. What did you take away from well, that? Well, it's my favorite chapter because I don't really... I've always had a strong affection for Ringo, but I don't really, never really knew that much about him. Just like his personality in the movies and everything, I always really loved. And I loved the anecdote that you have in there about "Don't Let Me Down," where um, he like, where John like asked for support and for him to like bang the cymbal extra hard. That's so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. give me courage to really come in screaming. Yeah, yeah. Said, yeah. Give me a big, give me the courage to come screaming in. And, and I it, thought about it um, when we were talking about sort of like with help and how just like John is right. like sort of reaching out. I think that's like such a beautiful, especially that coming from the end of their career. Yeah. Um, just kind of like a beautiful sort of like full circle thing with yeah. how Ringo affected the band, but also their brotherhood between the four of them that is just inescapable no matter yeah. how hard they try. Yeah. It's kind of, I guess a lot of groups and families and stuff, they have that one person has to be there in the room for the others to get along. And it's mm-hmm. funny that it seemed like Ringo, Ringo had that role. Yeah. How do you think Ringo felt when he first heard uh, Joe Cocker's version of of High with a Little Help from My Friends? That's a very good question. (laughs) I never thought about that until this moment. Whether whether he was like sort of chagrined or it was just like, hey, you know, I I did my version, (laughs) and you know, it's like. But, but, but I, I, another, I'm a big fan of Ringo's singing, really. I find it very charming, you know, mm-hmm. perhaps not so much in the solo records, but, uh, you know, in the context of a Beatles album, it really works. Yeah. And, and it's funny that, you know, it's, it's easy to forget when the Beatles broke up, he was the one who had the most initial solo success. <laughs> he had two number one hits before John had one. Like, it, it's, it's amazing that, you know, Ringo was the one who was racking up the solo hits in the early years. Uh, and it's, it's. You had a, a comment in the book, which was that they were always generous with giving him songs because if you 
put it on his soul records, no one would hear them more than once, which is one of the meanest things you've ever written. <laughs> uh, sorry, but like it's and you, li- you listen to the late '70s Ringo records, and like and you listen to a song like "Cooking in the Kitchen of Love," which John wrote for him, and it's like, wow, like John, like that was just even kind of mean putting that song in the post. Like Ringo, he he inspires deep feelings from the other Beatles, and and you can hear that come out in their music. That you know, in my life is a great example of a John song. We think of that as a John, John bearing his soul. But you listen to what Ringo's doing in that song, and he's really anchoring it emotionally. It, it, it wouldn't work without him, which is why any cover version of In My Life sounds silly because Ringo isn't there. Now, we love Ringo so much that we've barely left ourselves time for the I other three the, Beatles. Who cares about <laughs> the other three? Ringo and those other guys. Yeah. Ringo's gave his due. Yeah. <laughs> this is perhaps a touch extreme in what we just did, but uh, l- let's, uh, let's go to George. Where does George sit for you? And there's so much Beatle lore that you couldn't get to everything, and one of the things I don't think you got to was the hipster belief in the 2000s that George was the best Beatle. <laughs> if you know what I'm talking about. Hipster, we, we believed a lot of weird things in the 2000s, <laughs> let's face it. Um, and the thing is, like, George has always been, you know, he's a Beatle who doesn't quite fit into the group because, you know, they made him feel like an outsider a lot of the time. So he's someone, you have to, heart goes out to, to George that he's someone who is worshipped around the world as, you know, brilliant guitarist, brilliant songwriter, brilliant musician, and yet... The other guys in the band, they still treat him like you know the little kid who's just tagging along, and, mm. and it's it's e- economy class Beatles yeah, was, was yeah. what is his term for him and Ringo. Yeah, I love that, which love is that. strikingly self-aware. Yeah, and and it's funny, and we think of like you know Paul is being the one like always telling George what to do, but you listen to the Get Back sessions, and there's that heartbreaking moment where George is trying to get them to play All Things Must Pass, and John is so bored, he just starts playing a Chuck Berry song, and George says, that's it, I'm leaving, and he quits the band. Like, right then and there, he just walks out of the studio and doesn't come back for a week. And it's crazy that that the other Beatles were almost the only people that George couldn't get the respect and love that he craved from, and that that brought out something that's often like very, like, uh, dark and stern in his music, and yet, you know, there's something there's something beautiful about the way he he made music out of that. And and George was a very complex person. Um, in in Patty Boyd's book, which I know you've also read, uh, she describes these switching back and forth between cocaine binges and spiritual binges that are some of the wildest personal crises that I've ever heard of anyone going through. And that, uh, that is a very enjoyable book. I, I, I recommend after I just said how horrible it's, it's, it's very enjoyable to read about these terrible things. I love that. Well, and you think about, you know, like the, the trauma, the psychic burden, as you, as you said, what a beautiful phrase. I wish you'd said that when I still had time to steal it for the book. Um, <laughs> But in terms of having to live your private life in public and, you know, with George, it's like it's not just that your marriage breaks up. It's that she leaves you for your best friend and your best friend is Eric Clapton and he writes his most famous song about it. I mean, yes, your, your line that I love is there's public and then there's Layla. Yeah. Uh, there, 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 there was a great you, you can find it on YouTube. There's this great uh, uh 80s MTV interview with George when he around the time of Cloud Nine, and you can guess maybe the interviewer doesn't maybe know the full story of George and Eric. And the interviewer says, "So Eric Clapton plays in this album. Like, how long have you guys been friends?" <laughs> and George just he doesn't even crack his mouth. He says, "Well, well, we shared a wife." <laughs> there's this silence, and you could just like picture the interviewer just like breaking into six kinds of cold sweat. It is like. Really, I love Surly George, and that is seriously, seriously Surly George. He could bring the salt like no other Beatle. He's the one you'd be most afraid to like to get mad at you. 
I also like the fact that you point out that, as you phrased it, that he got custody of Bob Dylan and the Beatles' divorce, which was very funny and very true. Let's do John. I mean, w- what is your kind of relationship to John? Like, how how do you see him? Really disturbing. I mean, I've uh, <laughs> John is the wild, out of control friend who you know you're always a little tense in your stomach that they're going to say the wrong thing, do the mm. wrong thing. He was. Uh, impulsive and and rebellious and uncontrollable and that comes out in his music in really beautiful ways but also really uh, uh disturbing and, and as far as i'm concerned obsessively beautiful ways and paul is you are as you said in another interview recently a, a conflicted paul guy um he is I, I guess your beetle of choice but it's a it's a complicated relationship and i i love and i love that you let it play out you 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 can love him and mock him simultaneously which yeah. i think is the right way to love things in, in pop you know? <laughs> well serious muppet fans like to talk about chaos muppets versus yes, order, order muppets, muppets yeah. yes and you know john and paul are the ultimate example of that mm. you know uh john is the ultimate chaos muppet and paul is the ultimate order muppet you know they could not be more ernie could not be more bert and that something about paul that i really you know, relate to emotionally is is the emotional extremes that he's driven to uh, sort of by this tormenting friendship that he has with John and the way that friendship sort of gives him no peace and the way they spur each other on to write such great songs. You know, that John writes Strawberry Fields Forever and Paul is so blown away that he comes back a few days later with Penny Lane, you know, and these are songs that they did not write together, but they couldn't have been written except that these two guys were in competition. Two things, the Elvis Costello cover of Penny Lane, have you ever heard it? No. It's, it's fantastic. It's at the White House. And at the end, uh, a member of the military band comes up and plays the horn solo. Uh, and it's so fantastic. And it just, I, I actually think it's it, its probably my favorite version of Penny Lane, even more so than the, than the Paul version. And then on another Elvis Costello-related note, I talked to Elvis recently for the uh, Flowers in the Dirt reissue that, ca- that came out. Um, and he made a great point about Paul, which is that Paul was refusing to allow himself to write in the harmonic structures even of the Beatles. He had to come up with an entire, he forced himself, he didn't have to, but he forced himself to come up with new harmonic and melodic languages to write in. He sort of broke up with the part of himself that was a Beatle. And Elvis said that people don't realize that and people don't realize what a challenge he put on himself and that he actually had huge hits while restricting himself that way is a fascinating thing. And I, I because again, as we know, something like Back in the USR is practically a, a Paul solo track. So Paul could incarnate the Beatles if he wanted to solo in some ways, but yeah. he, he chose not to. Isn't well, that interesting? What, yeah, really interesting. One of the reasons, uh, Brittany, like you, Rubber Soul is my favorite and I will stand for Rubber Soul till the day I die. I've, I like, I already have that planned out for my tombstone. <laughs> Rubber Soul is the best. Rob Sheffield, like, da, da, da. Um, but uh, for me, like, the John Paul friendship, which is, you know, the heart of the band and something that, you know, that drives it emotionally and the way that they share vocals all over that album so something like you know Norwegian Wood where you know you hear the way their voices blend and there's during the bridge John is singing the part that really sounds like Paul and Paul is singing the part that really Mm. sounds like John it's like they trade voices almost they're almost reading each other's minds and there's something about the deepness and, and, and intensity of that friendship that that's part of what makes those records so compelling it's really the emotional heart of the Beatles so you've been listening to Rolling Stone Music Now we are talking with Bernie Spanos and with Rob Sheffield about his new book, Dreaming the Beatles, The Love Story of One Band and the Whole World. And thanks for being here, guys. And we will be back next week at 1 p.m. on Volume. 
In the meantime, be sure to download us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe as well. And we will see you next week. Thank you.